quite a bit to talk about today, so I will be brief. Um, but I want to welcome all of you here on behalf of the Global Antitrust Institute. Uh, when I left the Federal Trade Commission in August 2015 uh, to return to George Mason's faculty, um, a friend said, well, surely, Josh, you're going to go and learn a lot of administrative law because the future of antitrust is the intersection of administrative law and antitrust. And I admit to you, even having run an administrative agency, I had no idea what that friend was talking about. Uh, fast forward seven years, and, and, and we're, we're here. Uh, I think there's probably no more uh, interesting area or rich for discussion than uh, the intersection of administrative law and antitrust. Uh, and each in their own right has some interesting topics as well. So the day will be full of uh, conversations both at that intersection and then sort of respectively in administrative law and antitrust as well. Uh, we are excited that all of you are here. Uh, and with that, uh, I hand things over to my friend and colleague, Tad Lipsky. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, is the mic working? Yeah. Great. Let's begin then. Uh, as uh, Josh's brief remarks suggested, anytime you want to talk about public policy or legal issues associated with the Federal Trade Commission, we're uh, enjoying what you might call a target-rich environment. Uh, things are changing in remarkable and, in many respects, uh, totally unexpected ways. And uh, it's the subject of a lot of chatter in uh, scholarly journals and newspapers and uh, uh, legislative reports and so on. So the function of this first panel is just to kind of get a lot of things out on the table and perhaps do a little bit of uh, level setting, uh, talk about some of the range of issues uh, that, uh, that need focus. And uh, of course, we have the usual uh, stellar panel. It's, uh, it's really great uh, to be involved in another GAI event and uh, very grateful to the uh, uh, Boyden Gray Center, uh, uh, which has uh, become one of the real centers of excellence on, on this subject. So I'm going to very briefly introduce the panelists because uh, they, you have their biographies and the materials that are already handed out. They're probably well known to most or all of you. So uh, first is uh, sitting there on the far right, ironically, is uh, Andrew Gavel, who's a professor of law at Howard. I'm on the left from University. their perspective. <laughs> Good point. Good, excellent point. And the, uh, uh, the uh, basically the, all I want to emphasize about Andy, other than he's the author of uh, of uh, one of the leading antitrust uh, uh, case books is his, his experience with the administrative uh, state and with the FTC is, uh, is quite intense and he has served as the director of the Office of Policy and Planning. So that's a particularly noteworthy credential for today. And then we have uh, Professor Thomas Hazlitt, who is a professor of economics from Clemson University. And uh, in, uh, in that same spirit, I will say he served as the chief economist of the Federal Communications Commission, so knows something about how an administrative uh, body uh, functions. And finally, uh, sitting right next to me is uh, Barry Nigro. Uh, and in addition to a long and distinguished career in antitrust practice, he's uh, not long since a, a stint in the Department of Justice as the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Uh, of the antitrust division, so uh, he knows quite a bit about antitrust. 
And I'm going to ask uh, Tom to start things out with some brief remarks, uh, which uh, I have, uh, I hope will focus to some, uh, some great extent on kind of the public discussion about the fundamental economic and legal issues uh, with which we view the whole idea of antitrust and FTC as, uh, as an administrator or as an enforcer of the antitrust laws. Uh, there's been quite a bit of literature uh, about uh, concentration and economic power and, and uh, how things are changing and to what those changes are attributable. So uh, Tom, take it away and build a base for us, please. <laughs> Uh, thanks very much, uh, Tad. Uh, I'll I just say that uh, if my performance is not up to snuff today, uh, uh, I apologize. I, I was injured uh, just uh, the other night. I probably should be on the injured reserve today. But uh, I hurt my hand uh, when Justin Turner struck out in the uh, L.A. San Diego game. <laughs> I'm not going to get a lot of uh, sympathy maybe from... Uh, Professor Wright, uh, who I know hails from San Diego, but uh, unfortunately I'm from Los Angeles. So, anyway, um, it's uh, hopefully that you know it won't get in the way of the talk today. Uh, and I'm going to try to just do a quick uh, breezy setup. I'm the economist, and so I'll I'll talk about some of the issues in antitrust generally, uh, and then the lawyers take over. This is very much in fitting with tradition at uh, George Mason University Law School. Uh, so here we have, I think we have some slides, let's see if these work. <clears throat> Antitrust and flux, how things are changing. Uh, there obviously is a political demand for more antitrust, different antitrust, and so there's uh, a lot happening, and uh, we know five reasons are right there. Uh, the rise of the large digital platforms, sometimes called GAFM, uh, really have changed the, um, the face of uh, capitalism. And so it's not unusual at times of uh, disruptive change to have a discussion about uh, whether or not the old rules work and whether or not new rules are needed. So that's the sort of just uh, to be expected. And part of this uh, technological change that comes with the uh, uh, economic disruption certainly um, has a distinct character. Economies of scale are very important. You see this uh, deployed uh, very strategically in the marketplace. Uh, uh, there are great efficiencies, uh, both to those scale economies that are asserted and, of course, to globalization, which has had a profound impact on societies everywhere. In general, it allows uh, the U.S. Uh, marketplace to compete more head-to-head -head with many other uh, rising countries, and you see uh, uh, dramatically, in fact, that, uh, say, uh, wages uh, can be negatively impacted in a country like the U.S. and positively impacted in countries like India and China, and so this has political uh, implications. Uh, just the disruption of old industries um, with, 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 with all the pretty amazing new stuff that comes out, well, that's a threat. That's a challenge, and in fact, that will invoke some kind of reaction in the marketplace, and so you do see this. You see it on a bipartisan uh, basis. And um, uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, which I did insert into a piece a couple of years ago on the topic, uh, the president, uh, incoming president in uh, the United States 19, uh, tw in 2016 says, <clears throat> Jeff Bezos is worried about me. He thinks I would go after him for antitrust because he's got a huge antitrust problem because he's controlling so much. Uh, Trump announced uh, his model. The European Union is suing them all of the time. Well, we should be doing this. There are companies. <laughs> I always like that. Uh, it's a fair, fairly good insight. Uh, if 
if you can't sue your own companies, who can you sue? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we do have a couple of papers on this. Uh, my co-author and I, Robert Crandall, uh, and uh, one is uh, forthcoming in the Journal of Law and Economics. And then um, uh, the one I'm going to speak mostly about today uh, is uh, forthcoming in the Journal of Who Knows, <laughs> uh, which I, uh, a lot of my publications go there, by the way. Um, you, might, you might sort of characterize this conversation as uh, the, uh, the rebirth of uh, Louis Brandeis and his uh, views on antitrust. Uh, there are many uh, uh, papers that are important to read in this literature, and I'll just cite just a couple of them here. Not, um, uh, not too exciting, but I'll, I'll just, uh, uh, for, uh, for the record, say that th these are all uh, very important insights. The Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Thomas McCraw um, actually has a couple of chapters on uh, Louis Brandeis uh, opposing the consumer welfare standard and not being impressed with price decreases. In fact, fought price decreases, came out against volume discounts, for example. And this was uh, thought to be a problem because, of course, um, he had an interest in protecting small business at the expense of efficiency. And that was made rather explicitly, and that, that view uh, actually is, is, uh, had something of a renaissance in today's environment. The question, the basic question, is U.S. antitrust policy, in particular, looking at the uh, different, uh, you know, the, the, the global market, uh, is the U.S. antitrust policy too lax? Does it need to be tightened, beefed up in fairly, various dimensions? And some of the evidence uh, purporting to support this view uh, are um, pieces of research suggesting that U.S. markets are becoming more concentrated. And uh, you see this in the uh, aforecited uh, uh, report of the uh, President of the United States, the, uh, the Council of Economic Advisors, 2016. This was a theme picked up on by The Economist in 2016, uh, very reliably said, look at the four firm concentration ratios across the United States. The average has gone up uh, over the last uh, many uh, uh, years uh, to uh, from 26% to 32%, the top four firms controlling 32% of the market. Well, when you think about that, that means that there are at least nine other firms in the market uh, having no more than 8%. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of so so that is a, a view of national concentration that really I believe is 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 not so compelling. Uh, profit margins are up in the United States as a percentage of all economic activity. Um, some of this has to do certainly with the revolution just discussed. When you have uh, software platforms or uh, technological disruptions that can be um, obtained through upfront sunk investment and then amortized at a low, sometimes zero marginal cost, your profit margins do go up. You're shifting the investment to the upfront research end of things and you're shifting away from operating costs. So that's, that's the nature of that revolution. Uh, the labor share of national income in the United States has fallen over about 40 years from uh, about, uh, say, 61% uh, to 57%. So the falling labor share is thought to be a problem with this increasing concentration. The problem for that argument, again, if you look around the world, the U.S. Is actually ha has a very modest fall in uh, the share of national income going to wages. You look to countries like Australia and Japan and even the European Union, you see much more of a fall in labor share. This is a, a, an issue in, in all the affluent countries. 
also, when you talk about the correlation between concentration and profits, you run smack dab into the extremely uh, important, uh, deep, and influential critique by the late Harold Demsetz that when you see that the, the industries with high profits um, uh, have high concentration, what you may be looking at is entrepreneurship. In some industries, particular firms are particularly efficient. They jump out on the lead, they garner market share, and they make high profits. That's a sign that the system is working, not that the system is restricting output and failing consumers. You see this obviously in many US markets, Amazon being one of the obvious examples. It's picked out as a, a characterization of the problem. Well, the fact is that they've brought retailing to a new competitive level. Yes, they have concentration in the sense that they are a very large firm at the center of that industry now, retailing. An online distributor that actually has attacked bricks and mortar and driven prices down. So that's, uh, that's a different sort of uh, antitrust problem, so to speak. Finally, a lot of the big platforms are said to be buying up nascent competitors, and there's a whole list of these. Google bought Android and created, of course, their wireless uh, uh, ecosystem. Uh, Microsoft bought LinkedIn. This is actually the biggest uh, acquisition. It's uh, about number 60 in the top 100 acquisitions of all time, so it's not that high on the list, and in fact, nobody really talks about the LinkedIn monopoly or the Microsoft uh, social, uh, uh, social platform uh, monopoly, but uh, these are, uh, if you look and you go down the the whole list, fairly innocuous, and in fact, that's what Crandall and I do in our forthcoming paper in the Journal of Law and Economics. Now, there's one uh, acquisition that's uh, also in the top 100, something like 80th um, in U.S. history, and that was uh, 2014 when Instagram was purchased by Facebook. Now, that's being relitigated by the Federal Trade Commission, so maybe that topic will come up today. Uh, there are examples where this more aggressive antitrust policy is kicked in, and uh, um, this is something I wrote uh, just last year, because the, the case that the uh, Trump administration brought against uh, the AT&T-Time Warner merger uh, was not successful. The merger took place, unfortunately, for AT&T because uh, as soon as they had the ability to uh, allegedly, as the, um, uh, depart this is a Department of, Ju uh, Department of Justice case, uh, af after they had allegedly the uh, vertical power to, uh, uh, to hurt competitors, direct competitors to the uh, uh, broadband uh, uh, distribution uh, service of AT&T, uh, they immediately found that it was not worth anything. In fact, it was worth a large negative number and they ended up unloading Time Warner for about half of what they had paid for it just a few years before. So we've run through that. We've also had a successful policy that some people, uh, particularly states uh, attorneys general, were uh, uh, very interested in litigating and in fact did litigate and, and lost the case against the merger in 2019-2020. Uh, uh, T-Mobile did acquire Sprint. We went uh, by some counts from a four to a three uh, U.S. mobile market. That was supposed to be indicative of uh, excess concentration. And this despite the fact that, for example, most EU companies have gone four to three already. Uh, but the argument was that T-Mobile acquiring Sprint would become a much more aggressive and successful competitor against the two uh, leading firms, AT&T and Verizon, in the industry. And in fact, that's what's happening. So there's a very uh, successful outcome uh, thus far to the, uh, to the liberal policy. You can see this in a lot of ways, but certainly in developing 5G networks, this uh, revitalized and larger T-Mobile, which is 
now about the same uh, heft in terms of subscribership and revenues as the two larger, uh, traditionally larger um, uh, carriers in the industry, is uh, producing a lot uh, better quality product than, than they would have been likely to uh, without the merger. And in fact, uh, winning the third party evaluations in terms of best 5G network. So the speed, uh, just showing the speeds and so forth here, uh, that's actually a, a feather in the cap of US antitrust policy. It allowed something that a lot of the new brand Dyceans would, uh, would object to, did object to, lost in court. And I think that the antitrust policy that prevailed uh, certainly has some uh, very obvious pro-consumer outcomes uh, to talk about. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tom. That was uh, in incredibly well organized and effective. I really appreciate it. Um, before we uh, go on uh, and pass the floor to uh, somebody else, uh, I guess I'd like to ask the panelists, the other panelists, if they want to, uh, to react uh, to anything that Tom uh, presented. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I was really hoping uh, in, uh, that we would address and Tom has addressed is this kind of uh, uh, drumbeat that began with the Council of Economic Advisors report in 2016 uh, that came out talking about increased concentration, increased monopoly power, and all the other, the profits, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, to me, uh, it was surprising the speed with which, uh, because of various uh, sympathetic NGO reports and uh, congressional proceedings and, and other contributions by the, by the media, like the Economist article that Tom mentioned, uh, it almost seems to be accepted in the public mind that there's, that there's, uh, that there's some kind of a problem with industrial uh, competition and, and structure uh, in the United States. And uh, I don't think uh, that's a fair characterization. Uh, I, w I wonder if there's anybody on the panel who who wants to defend uh, uh, the other point of view. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say I, I don't know that it's as accepted as people think it is. There obviously is a lot of noise out there um, calling for radical shift in antitrust policy. But uh, fortunately, the courts are continuing to apply traditional antitrust law, the way it's been applied for the last several decades. And you see that reflected in a number of the recent decisions that the agencies have been confronted with uh, at the FTC with the Jewel case and Illumina Grail and, and on the DOJ side with uh, United Healthcare Change and the Sugar case, uh, the uh, Booz Allen um, case that just came out. Uh, we're still waiting to hear on publishers. Uh, I, I'm Personally, I'm expecting that that one may be a win for DOJ. We'll see. But, uh, but, but I think the courts are still looking to apply antitrust law the way they always have. And, and, um, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. But one of the things that the agencies are trying to do now is you know, rewrite the guidelines. And, and, and that somehow that's going to magically uh, change the law and immediately be embraced by the courts. But one of the challenges, and I think you know, Andy... Um, Gavel mentioned this the other day when we were speaking, is that the courts have actually embraced the, the existing guidelines to some extent. And, um, and, 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 and that didn't happen overnight. It happened because they, um, you know, through, through an iterative process where 
um, uh, cases were brought, and, and, and based on the facts and the law, the courts um, uh, gradually embraced the guidelines more and more. And I, I, I can't imagine that they're just going to sort of turn on a dime and say, okay, we're, we were wrong. Uh, now that the guidelines have changed, the law must have changed, and, and, and we're off on a new path. So I, I think it's going to be uh, much more difficult for the agencies to change law through uh, policy, um, and, and that's because we have fundamentally a law enforcement regime, not, not a regulatory regime, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's, that's a good thing. Ted, I would add that um, I, I think it's not a binary yes or no question. I think there are degrees of acceptance of the criticism. And I think one of the challenges of our time is that um, although the loudest voices may be at sort of the extremes, everything's fine, blow everything up, um, there's a lot of disagreement uh, along the spectrum uh, and different views. And uh, two concrete examples, um, John Baker's book, uh, now almost two years ago, um, The Antitrust Paradigm, um, sort of steps away from the concentration debate and says we have a market power problem. Um, and he tries to, um, uh, in his book, he tries to document and support that, that particular view. Um, S2992 is, uh, I think, a very interesting study because that has caused a split among people that you might predict would be in agreement uh, along a spectrum. Um, uh, there are um, people you would associate with stronger antitrust enforcement who are taking the view that we do need to strengthen antitrust enforcement who are concerned about that bill. Um, I'm included in that group. Um, there are others who are um, you know, suggesting that the bill is good and we should pass the bill. It's the best we can do. But when I see that kind of split among people who usually agree with each other and who are agreeing that we need stronger antitrust enforcement, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why I think that's so um, later. Um, but I think that tells you that it's a more nuanced, complex problem than are you for or are you against the, the critique. Um, but the critique is historically interesting to me as well because the critique of the old antitrust that eventually began the process of change in the late 1970s, that, as you said, Tad, that took decades also. Um, uh, and that wasn't like an, uh, you know, a sudden departure from prior antitrust. Um, uh, so that's something I hope we'll, we'll unpack a little bit more as we go along. But I think it's important to see that um, there isn't sort of uh, a clear coalescing of views, and that's part of what's making this period complex. Andy, do you have, um, you don't need to answer if you feel you don't want to, but uh, I'm curious, what is your reaction to uh, Tom's description of the way these uh, merger cases have been proceeding and coming out? I don't know if you, you follow, I, well, I assume you follow all of these cases very closely, but... Oh, very closely, everyone, what, every single one. But whether you, <laughs> but I'd be curious to know if you, if you have any net reaction to kind of the, the way this uh, this merger enforcement is going in these sectors that Tom has been describing. Um, so if I if I had a, a blackboard, I would write the word rhetoric greater than reality. 
Um, and I think that that's um, a part of uh, our time right now. When you look at those cases, um, I think they both illustrate the problem and illustrate um, that there is no problem. Um, they're not especially expansive or creative. For all of, for all of the um, criticisms of the so-called Neo-Brandeisians, and I'd like to come back to that because I think that's a catchy title, but it's not really what Brandeis did when he was on the Supreme Court. It may have been what he said, but that's another. But these cases, um, they're losing relatively conventional cases. There's nothing un about vertical cases. There's nothing totally unconventional about some of the cases. But the law has become very demanding. So rather than say we have a concentration problem or a market power problem, my view is we have an antitrust law problem. And the antitrust laws have drifted in a direction of increasingly high expectations of economic precision to the point where burdens of proof use of presumptions, use of inferences has become um, problematic. And you see it in private cases. Every bar that can be raised, burden of pleading, burden of production, burden of proof, class action certification. This has happened again over decades. And it represents a skepticism of antitrust. It represents a skepticism of the private right of action, a skepticism of treble damages, a skepticism of e-discovery. Um, uh, you look in a case like um, uh, Twombly, and there's a big footnote about, well, that's the scary cost of discovery that leads us to raise the burden of pleading for everyone. It's a, it's a bigger picture, and I think we do have an antitrust problem when it becomes so difficult to win relatively easier cases. Um, so I would say to, to your question, Tad, that um, the losses I'm seeing are not because the agency is, is you know, reaching out for you know, creative, extreme, push-the-envelope theories. Um, they're, they're doing some of that, but they're losing even unconventional theories because the burdens are so demanding and the evidentiary expectations are so high. We've seen this movie before, I mean, with hospitals back 20 years ago that the FTC had a string of losses in hospital cases. Uh, I, can't recall if it was seven, eight, or nine in a row. And, and what they did is they stepped back and they said, let's do a 6B study and rethink how we're approaching hospital cases. And so they did a retrospective, got the data, the economists looked at it, worked it, and out of that case came the Evanston Northwestern uh, case that was brought in part three. Um, and following that, you know, that exercise, um, hospital merger enforcement got back on track, and and it, I think it was a you know a product of the learning that occurred by sort of stepping back and, and and looking at are we litigating these cases the right way, and I wonder if some of that needs to happen now uh, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater and 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 try to address particular concerns with platforms and 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 the GAFM as Tom said. Uh, because I, I don't know, I, at least I'm not persuaded that antitrust law is not working with respect to the, the rest of the economy. I understand that, that, that some of the, 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 the tech platforms are, are different, They're, the economics are different, but 
but I'm not convinced that it's not working with the rest of the economy. And some of the cases that the agencies have lost on, when you when you go back and look at the facts, um, you know, the, the, there's an argument that it's understandable why the judges had struggled with those cases. So I, I don't know that 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 the the situation with the laws is dire as uh, as, as as Andy may think. Um, I, I agree that there's always room for improvement, and and that having these sorts of debates about whether the law needs to be uh, tweaked here and there, I, I think that's a healthy thing. Uh, it, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be stagnant, um, and 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 can benefit from from, from change over time. But I, I I'm, I'm worried a bit about the pace of the change and the and the scope. Uh, of the change, I don't know that like a seismic shift is needed. I think it's worked, you know, pretty well. And 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 and, and we can talk separately about you know enforcement resources and, and and whether the agencies. I mean, the agencies, frankly, the staffing hasn't kept pace with an inflation, and and their their headcounts are way down from where they were 20, 30 years ago. So that that's contributing to uh, some of the challenge that they're facing. No, I think I would agree. I would agree with with Barry in this. I would say that the um, the rhetoric for either sinking the ship or completely turning the ship in some major way is wrong. I do think we need some course corrections. Before we leave the sort of general economic background and the the broad context for what we're going to be talking about in the rest of the panel and the rest of the day. Uh, I wanted to pose this very broad question. I think Tom primarily uh, looking for uh, your reaction, but obviously others are, are welcome. Um, I look back at uh, some figures for GDP and notice that in um, uh, the first quarter of 1980, you, which was when, uh, I'm sorry, 1981, forgive me, the uh, U.S. GDP stood when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated at about $3 trillion. And the GDP of the nations, the 28 nations that ultimately comprised the European Union, pre-Brexit of course, was also about $3 trillion. If you look at the inflation-adjusted GDP figures for the first quarter of 2020, which was the last quarter before the, uh, the COVID shutdowns, the uh, European countries' GDP was 15 trillion. So it expanded essentially by a factor of five. And in the United States, the corresponding figure, also inflation adjusted, is 21 trillion. So the US had expanded by a factor of seven. And if I could also, if you, I think you see where I'm going with this, I also would also mention that if you look down any list of the top uh, companies in the technology sector or indeed in any part of the private sector, I'm excluding things like, like uh, sovereign uh, 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 oil companies, uh, You'll, you'll find mostly U.S. companies. You'll, you'll have to look down a fairly long way to hit companies from Europe like um, SAP and uh, what have you. But, but my point is uh, we stand in, uh, 
uh, you know, the U.S. antitrust policy has stood in, in marked distinction to that of the EU uh, over these uh, many years. And of course, I think it would be foolish to attribute uh, all of that or any significant part of that uh, change, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the success of the American economy compared to the EU economy. I think it'd be foolish to attribute uh, that too much to antitrust, but I can't help feeling that there's some element of that that goes into the mix. And so, Tom, you, you, if you see where I'm driving, I'd love to hear your. <laughs> I'd love to hear your reaction. Your reaction, other than uh, you'd need a lot more data and a lot more thinking in order to come up with any causal link. But just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, further research is needed. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, it's it's a it's a point that's well taken, and uh, the um, the fact is that um, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of assertions, even by uh, you know prominent members of the debate, um, that the U.S. is lagging behind. Our you know antitrust has fallen back, and therefore the European Union is doing much better in things like cellular and broadband. Uh, it's just not true. Uh, the U.S. markets are fairly robust. Uh, we've made some mistakes, certainly, and uh, uh, I'd be happy to give you uh, 31 Hazlet references on explaining them in some detail. But um, you know, the uh, other markets uh, don't don't do things perfectly either in terms of their uh, uh, policy or, or business strategies. And um, you know, straight up like this, if you look at the high-level numbers. Um, you're very impressed by U.S. growth. I mean, there has been U.S. growth. It certainly led the world in terms of the entrepreneurship into the digital era. Uh, if you do um, uh, the, uh, there's an annual uh, Silicon Valley report on the top 30 uh, tech firms in the world. Uh, the last one I looked at uh, was a couple of years ago. I think it was pre-COVID. Um, it was striking, the top 30 uh, most valuable tech firms in the world. Uh, no, they're not all U.S. Okay, there's, I don't think, seven or eight are Chinese now. And they have, you know, certain other mechanisms for market share that uh, maybe aren't what the rest of us might apply. But the U.S. is certainly dominant. In the entire list, there is one firm based in Europe. And you probably couldn't even guess it. It's, it's uh, number 30. Spotify. Oh, Spotify. <laughs> From Sweden. As we say in South Carolina, bless their heart. Okay, so the Swedes got one in the top thirty. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you, you know, you, you go to conferences in Europe, and you do have Europeans saying, "How can we get more investment in research and development, more more uh, disruptive technology, like the U.S., for example?" I mean, that's what the discussion is. Then when it goes to public policy, it's all, well, the U.S. has these bad policies, and we, we have our own policies, and then you get on a completely different track. And so there is, there is, a, there is a problem and a disconnect that, that needs to be smoothed over. And certainly in the U.S., uh, we shouldn't have any problem sort of ferret, ferreting these things out and maybe go against the logic. Uh, if they're your companies, <laughs> you ought to spend more time suing them. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's try to transition here. Uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion about the broad background. And uh, uh, I'd like to get us to look at what, what's happening down on the killing floor. Uh, we have had so much activity at the agencies. 
some of it may be lightly anticipated in the prior administration, but certainly a huge change as the personnel were replaced uh, following the last election. And Barry, I'm going to look to you to kind of summarize. Rather than make my own list, I'm going to let you summarize what you'd like. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm the practitioner on the panel, and I'm still working for a living, so I need to be mindful of that. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, um, working with the agencies now has is, is become a, a bit of a challenge. And, and, uh, and having recently left the Department of Justice and having served at the FTC, I have a lot of respect for the mission. And, and, and understand the importance and, and agree with Jonathan Cantor that, that uh, you know, competition's critical to capitalism, but it's also critical to uh, incentivizing investment and, and taking the risk that result in getting so many companies at the top, top of the list that Tom was, was talking about. And, and, and if we aren't mindful of the um, importance of, of, of that incentive, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to compromise that, 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 that advantage that, that this country has when it comes to um, how we apply competition policy in order to uh, stimulate more investment and, and ultimately more, more productive output. Um, so it, it uh, you know, I think it's important how the agencies approach, approach their mission and we're sort of looking at wholesale change um, on the march at, at both agencies. We see the consumer welfare standard is under attack. Uh, there is the executive order that was discussed. Um, you know, that executive order, it, uh, you know, if you look back at the Sprint T-Mobile case, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the things that happened in that case that doesn't get talked about is the FCC agreed to the party's offer of a price cap. And there were no damages after that. So what's, where's the harm? How do you go in front of a judge and explain the harm? And, and a number of states tried and, and, and were unsuccessful. Uh, so I think part of the goal of the executive order when I read it, I, I didn't really read it as talking to the FTC or the Department of Justice. I read it as speaking to the agencies you know, you need to get in line behind the antitrust agencies and support their efforts to bring more cases. And, 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 and so I think that's what, what that order is, is really driving at. And I think that's how it, 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 it could have an impact going forward. Then there's a desire to change the merger guidelines and, and, and combine the horizontal guidelines with the vertical guidelines, um, rewrite them. I'm you know, that the, there'll probably be a draft out sometime before the end of the year, I'm expecting, and I think they're going to be radically different from what we've seen in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that moves forward. Um, there's, uh, I think, less value given to efficiencies, which I always viewed as a good thing. I would think we'd want to promote efficiencies. Um, there are questions as to, you know, whether there's any, any merit and even investing the time and money to, to try to you know prove your case based on efficiencies uh, so I, 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 it makes me wonder well, aren't, aren't, aren't efficiencies a good thing aren't lower prices a good thing I mean if, if we're ultimately trying to benefit consumers through competition I would think lower prices would be a good thing but it's it's not always clear um, what what the objective is here um, 
there are, um, I think, increased challenges in responding to uh, requests for information, whether they're uh, second request or, or other forms of compulsory process. Uh, that's become uh, a much more challenging exercise and, and incredibly expensive to the process. Uh, so there's a lot more friction there. Uh, the you know the the approach to remedies that that, that you know we when you know Macon when he was AAG um, you know gave a speech one of his first speeches preceding the challenge in AT and T Time Warner where he raised questions about the ability to effectively police um, behavioral decrees um, and some of the challenges there and and uh, now we're in a world where I think. The policy is we don't like remedies at all. So even straight up divestiture remedies are not necessarily acceptable in all cases, although I, I, I find it ironic because the FTC just signed off on tractor supply, which is a, a, a huge retail divestiture of 80-some stores, I think. And to the extent the remedy policy is based on concern about problems with remedies, all the problems with remedies have been focused on retail divestitures, like, like Dollar Store and Hertz and those sorts of things. So I, w- I was like, wait, we don't like remedies, but we're okay with this one. So I'm wondering, like, does the FTC have a different policy from DOJ? Or, you know, it, it, we're sort of in this state where it's, it's a bit confusing as to what the agencies are okay with and what they're not okay with and why. Um, prior approvals, you know, they're, they're now, there's now a big push to put prior approvals in consent decrees. And uh, that was something that was popular the last century. Um, it, 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 the agencies got rid of it for a reason. And it, it, it's, you know, it's a bit concerning because it's not prior notice. Prior notice, fair enough, if, they're, if you're, you're in a market that's concentrated and you're worried about incremental acquisitions that are not reportable and you want to get some notice of that and have an opportunity to look at it because you think that 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 the the, the parties are already at the line um, you know that that's fair enough but the prior approval is just what it sounds like it's totally up to the discretion of the agency whether to give you a thumbs up thumbs down there's no timeline associated with it um, and you know there have been situations in the past where prior approval applications have 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 been sort of lost in limbo uh, for over a year. Um, one of them resulted in a criminal contempt proceeding because the parties, I, I think, at some point gave up. And, uh, uh, and 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 so you know, and what's the standard for getting prior approval? Is it a Section Seven standard? I mean, it seems to be totally up to the discretion of the agency. So it's almost like. A whole another regime that's not subject to review in any way. So you know, it 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 uh, very different from prior notice, but but to be expected now in any settlement that results in a decree. And there are warning letters that come out now um, on a regular basis, uh, mostly from the FTC, but but some from Justice. And you know, people are trying to figure out well, what's the import of a warning letter. What does it mean? Um, I mean, it, it's always been true that the agencies uh, could challenge a merger after it was consummated, even after it went through the Hart-Scott-Rudino process. We did that with Parker Hannafin 
something was missed, it was a merger to monopoly, it was addressed, and um, the law is always allowed for that. Doesn't happen very often, but when it does, there's, there's, there's a, a process. It seems that warning letters are being issued as a matter of course on, 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 on transactions, and, and it's not clear why. Uh, so parties you know, are now building into merger agreements provisions to say um, that a warning letter doesn't, that, that doesn't compromise uh, any of the closing conditions. That, you, know, you still have to close to, despite getting a warning letter. There was a temporary suspension of early termination that happened way back at the beginning of the administration, and it, it was advertised as temporary, and, and it's been over a year and a half. Um, and there's been no discussion about when it will end and why it's still needed. Um, and the, the thing is, early termination was at the discretion of the agencies to begin with, so it wasn't clear to me how that burdened, uh, created more burden, and it did allow the agency the ability to uh, grant early termination in situations where there were compelling reasons uh, to do so uh, due, due to things beyond the control of the parties. So that, that's no longer available. Um, the agencies are broadening the aperture on Section 2 on, on criminal enforcement. They've talked about bringing Section 2 criminal cases. It's happened in the past. It is in the statute. Um, but it's unclear sort of exactly what they have in mind and, and, and how that's going to be applied. I mean, I, I think the guidance was, we'll look at the past cases, but we're talking about some cases that are fairly dated. So, um, it, you know, some more guidance on that would be, would be welcome. And then, you know, recently, a few weeks ago, Commissioner Bedoya talked about um, sort of re, re, reinvigorating the Robinson-Patman Act, um, which, you know, is still, alive and well and, and, and their private Robinson-Patman cases. And I think there's some Robinson-Patman lawyers out there. I don't know many. And I, I still remember from when I was young looking at Robinson-Patman issues and writing memos to clients and, and, and all of that. But, but for the past 20 years, it's really not been of any interest to the agencies. They kind of reached the conclusion that it, it on balance, did more harm than good. So, um, but, but, but it's on the books and, and, and there are private actions here and there. So it looks like that's Something that 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 uh, um, firms need to you know keep you know keep on on uh, be more sensitive to because uh, you know at some point I think the agencies are going to be more active there. So so there's a lot you know it, it seems like there's a lot that's happening and it's all happening at once and it's uh, you know if you go to the websites of the agencies and try to find things like 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 the Antitrust Division Manual, it's not there. <laughs> uh, so it, it, at least it wasn't when I looked a week ago. Maybe it's there right now, I don't know. But uh, um, so, so we're in this sort of transitional period where um, you know, the, the, there's an effort to make this seismic shift in enforcement and, 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 and to use sort of the regulatory machinery to um, change the law and change how it's applied. Uh, and, 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 and as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, so far the courts have, you know, been skeptical of some of the recent cases and fairness, um, you know, some of those Jonathan, uh, you know, had just landed. He hasn't, he hasn't even been in his position a year. Um, it's, I think it was confirmed in mid-November. 
and so he's coming up on a year. But I, I do think that that both the FTC and, and the Department of Justice are, are going to you know be climbing a steep hill uh, in order to sort of implement some of the policies that they've articulated. And even at the FTC's um, you know administrative law judge, Judge Chapel, who's been there for a long, long time, and where they frequently prevail. Um, they've lost two cases in a row in front of Judge Chapel, so even even the ALJ at the FTC is, you know, asking questions about some of the some of the cases that have been brought. So, well, I'm uh, Andy's looking at me because he knows my next question is for him, which is uh, let, let me put it this way, Andy. Um, based on this very uh, cogent and complete list that. Uh, of, of what's been going on with uh, merger policy, particularly FTC, and merger practice and procedure and speechifying, uh, I don't think it would be too unfair to say that the FTC, at least, just doesn't like transactions. It just doesn't like corporate acquisitions and wants to discourage them any way it can through hostile changes and substantive uh, substantive rules through this long list of little petty procedural changes that are, I suppose, although I don't want to prejudice anybody's lawsuit if they want to challenge them, but I suppose, like, for example, eliminating, uh, you know, making a practice of not granting early terminations is, or, or, or this business about sending you a letter saying, well, we know your waiting period is about to expire, but but you, you know, don't read anything into that. Uh, it, it's, it seems like uh, that's kind of the, the net net is the, is that they just don't like transactions and are going to discourage them in any way that's uh, that's available. And I guess part one of the question is, do you agree with that? And part two is, uh, you know, if, if you do, is that a great idea? Do you support it or something else? Sure. Um... So changing business as usual is disruptive. And lawyers who have practiced in a similar way for a long time view it as disruptive. Clients view it as disruptive. I'm not going to um, go through the list and, and try to you know, defend or, or, um, uh, or oppose any, any of those measures. But I will say this. In 1982, when the new merger guidelines came out, um, the antitrust bar was was pretty kind of scratching their head, mystified by the hypothetical monopolist test. Um, they wondered about the HHI. Change faces resistance, and it took a long time. As late as 1990, in Baker Hughes, the D.C. Circuit was saying, "We don't uh, we don't know where you got this entry stuff in your guidelines from, but that's not what the law is." So let's not forget little historical context. Change is difficult. And change when you're trying to ramp up enforcement is a lot more difficult than when you're trying to ramp down. So another difference, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, 1981 versus 2022. Um, uh, there is clearly messages that they're trying to send. And again, I'm not going to defend every little procedural thing that they've done. Um, how they go about it um, concerns me as well. But 
it is harder to do. It, like I said, if you really think the ship is headed in the wrong direction and what you want to do is ramp up enforcement, it takes time to develop cases. It takes time to develop new guidelines and theories. Um, uh, and we are not very far into this administration. Um, uh, remember that you know, it was 1984 in the Reagan administration before you started getting this real push with amicus briefs in the Supreme Court that year um, in a series of important cases, Jefferson Parish, Copperweld, NCAA, um, where the government really started to have an, an impact on the Supreme Court. These things take time. Um, and so, um, you know, I'll, I'll say flat out, I want the FTC to succeed. I think that we are better off with it than without it. I want Lena Khan to succeed. Um, am I concerned about some of these procedural things? Yes. Um, I actually had a couple of questions for, for Barry. Um, but we are clearly still in a very early period. And it's disruptive for clients and for practicing lawyers when you're being told something very different and I think Barry's right. There is a message of we're concerned about transactions. They're being very explicit about that. That merger policy has been too permissive, and we want to send a message of a higher level of scrutiny. Whether they're doing it in the best way, I think we could, you know, we could debate that. Um, uh, but I think that they are as clear in their message as Bill Baxter was in saying we're heading in a different direction now. And there was resistance to some of the specifics back then. Um, if I can, I wanted to ask Barry one specific question, which is whether or not he thinks clearance is, is more, less important, less consequential, the same. Um, are you seeing that becoming an issue for, for parties? It's, it's, it's an ongoing debate, you know, clearance, and sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. So you've got the, 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 the sort of friction and uncertainty associated with it, so that that's one issue. But um, are you asking whether it matters which agency you're at? Uh, yeah, whether whether your perception is that because do, do you really see um, the FTC and the DOJ as um, moving in the identical direction, or are there differences that you think make clearance more consequential than it was before this administration? I think that in some respects. It can be consequential, and part of that is related to um, resource constraints. Uh, it also, um, I do think there are some differences in how the agencies are approaching merger enforcement. So, you know, I don't know that the tractor supply consent decree would get through DOJ right now. Um, but it seemed to have gotten through FTC. There have been a number of consent decree, divestiture uh, decrees coming out of the FTC. I, last time I checked, I don't think there's been a single one out of the DOJ since Jonathan arrived. So, um, you know, there have been deals that have gone through. There have been deals that had uh, divestitures associated with them or were coincident with the deal going through, but no consent decrees. So there are some differences on the margins, and I think whether it matters depends on your particular deal, the industry, and how you think, you know, where you think there, if, if there are issues where you think they are, and, and how the agencies will, will deal with them. Because I, I, 
I think it's going to be very fact-specific as to whether you prefer to be at one agency or the other right now. Um, one, one thing I've wondered is um, when you're going to the FTC, it's almost like you have multiple constituencies that you have to be prepared to address. And there, there may be you know, divisions between where staff is and it's unclear. It's a different relationship between staff and, and the leadership. Um, how you approach the different commissioners, um, how you approach the ALJ if you've got a part three proceeding, how you prepare a record for the court if what you're doing is kind of giving up and thinking, we're just, you know, they got the three votes, we're gonna lose. Seems to me that that's one of the complications right now is it's almost like you're dealing simultaneously with multiple constituencies. Yeah, there's less of that on the DOJ side, partly because of just structural reasons. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, there's one decision maker, and, and I think Jonathan's assembled a strong litigation team, and he, you know, he's, he's been doing this a long time. I've practiced with him for a number of years, and uh, he, you know, he knows what he's doing. So he's, you know, he, he, and he's got a very strong team. So I, you know, I agree with you that, that uh, it's still early, and I, I think his uh, last political spot, I might be wrong about this, but was, I don't know if he has any, any others here or there, but, but was just recently filled. I mean, and Michael Cadis, who used to be at the FTC, mm -hmm. I worked with Mike um, when I was there. Uh, he, he just uh, joined as a deputy not too long ago. Uh, Andy Foreman <clears throat> also uh, recently joined. Andy's been with, you know, worked with Jonathan since he was back in 2000 at Freed Frank. So it, it uh, I, I think he's got a very good team. And from what I can tell, they're working well together. And I expect that, um, you know, that some of the challenges that they're facing with the courts, that that's going to, you know, that's going to turn around at, at, at some point, um, you know, given the quality of the litigators that they have and 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 Jonathan's vision. Um, so I, you know, while, while they they're they're dealing with some challenges now, I I don't think that's the way this is going to play out long run. But but you know, institutionally, the FTC is structured very differently with the bureau and the commissioners. It's it's. Uh, you know, at the staff level, both agencies pretty much operate the same. It's what happens after that and where, where the differences um, can, make, can, can be consequential. Tom, I know uh, economists uh, rarely concern themselves with these grubby little details that the lawyers <laughs> are forced to confront, but did, did you have any comment on this part of the conversation? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, More research is needed. <laughs> More research is needed. Uh, yeah, it, it does remind me, though, that in the, I mentioned the T-Mobile case, I was one of the experts retained. There were a large number of uh, economists retained in the, by the merging parties, and I was, um, I, I was one of them. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I wanted to make that disclosure. Congratulations. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to... Uh, uh, shift the ground now and uh, in the concluding uh, time that we have left uh, in, in addition to the possibility of audience questions toward the end uh, as to which I'm not sure what the uh, procedure is but I do want to kind of uh, uh, introduce an additional degree of freedom to what we're thinking about in the sense that 
So far, I think we've been talking about the development of the commission and the commission's antitrust policy within the framework of, the, of existing law and practice and how it's being changed here, at least in the short run, and starting to think about the long run. But of course, uh, everybody's aware that there are these uh, massive, dramatic proposals pending in Congress for all kinds of changes to antitrust law. Uh, everything from repealing or overruling every Supreme Court case uh, since General Dynamics uh, to uh, you know changing the uh, merger standard under Section 7 of the Clayton Act. And uh, I'd like to uh, turn the mic over to uh, Andy who's going to describe a little bit about what the world uh, might look like uh, if you consider these uh, broader proposals and maybe talk about the kinds of changes outside our current box that, that would seem advisable. Sure, thank you. Um, so I wanted to start um, this segment by going back to something I alluded to earlier, 2022 versus 1981. Um, um, Jonathan Cantor has, has used the word inflection point in, uh, well, that's two words. He's used the words <laughs> inflection point uh, a couple of times in some of his speeches. And so I'd like to start this segment by asking, are we at an inflection point? Um, uh, are we at a point where things are really going to move in a very different direction long term? Um, understanding, as I said earlier, that I think that that's a process that takes time. But is this moment conducive to that kind of change? And I want to draw a little bit of a compare and contrast with um, uh, 1981. So one thing that was really true in 1981 was that there were really at that point decades of criticism of many of the leading antitrust cases, especially the antitrust cases in the 1960s. Um, there is criticism today. Um, but it's not decades of criticism, and it's not as deep. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, in a sense, it's a still-forming criticism. But um, Tom reviewed some of it, um, uh, and it's being debated. But it still seems like the criticism, the critique of the current law is in relatively earlier stages. But I, as I said earlier, I would count myself in the group of saying I'm not happy with the current state of antitrust law. I think it has drifted in a direction of being far too demanding. But what about the rest of it? Political winds were changing in 1981 in a major way. Um, the Supreme Court had changed in a major way that made it much more receptive to change by the late 70s, even before uh, the Reagan administration took office and into the 1980s. But you had the four Nixon appointees, you had Stevens. Um, uh, the court was a very different court that was receptive to the message. Um, I wrote an article many years ago about Powell's role in Sylvania and Monsanto, and I asked one of his clerks if he would characterize Powell as a Chicagoan, and he said no. No, not at all, but the Chicago critique resonated with him as a business lawyer. Um, so is this court receptive to the kind of change um, uh, that is being promoted for more progressive antitrust? Um, not really a rhetorical question, because we all know the answer is no. <laughs> um, there was a durable effort 
There was eight years of the Reagan administration, as we talked about before. They saw, they saw the opening in cases like Sylvania and broadcast music. And even National Society of Professional Engineers, which was a plaintiff's win, but it really emphasized the role of competitive effect. And Sylvania and BMI were emphasizing the role of efficiency. By the way, none of those cases used the phrase consumer welfare. Um, uh, and that's, that's a kind of a separate discussion, but I think that that's a little bit of mixed up conventional wisdom. It's not until Brook Group that a majority decision uses consumer welfare in the way that um, uh, Bork intended it and associated it with um, uh, higher output, lower prices. That's Brook Group. It appears in some dissents before that, and it famously appears in Reader versus Sonotone in 1979, but that's a case about Section 4 of the Clayton Act and consumer injury. Um, uh, and they pluck the quote from Bork from a year earlier and say, well, of course, consumers who pay high prices, by the way, for resale price maintenance, which is what that case involved, um, are injured in their business or property. So the, the period of change is long. There were decades of criticism, decades of changes, a receptive court, a change in the political atmosphere, and they were ramping down instead of ramping up. Is that where we are in 2022? And that brings me to the, you know, answering Tad's question about our last segment. Are we really poised for a big change? Are we as an, at an inflection point? And I talk about um, sort of two examples to say I'm skeptical that we're there, even if I think things should change, but I'm skeptical about this sort of big change of direction. Um, the first is the merger guidelines, and, and um, I think as Barry mentioned we, in our prep call, we were talking about what's different today about changing the merger guidelines. Um, the formal view of merger guidelines since 1968 has always been that they're just about enforcement policy. They're not about the law. They're not about burdens of proof. Um, and, and yet the success of the guidelines has changed that. Because when you start looking, especially at district court decisions, where the guidelines have been urged as, as more than just guidelines, they have been written into law. Courts use the HHIs. Courts use burden shifting. And they talk about market definition, and they talk about market shares, and they use the HHIs, and they, they use the hypothetical monopolist test. The agencies have been using it when they go into court. Are they still trying to use Philadelphia National Bank? Yes. But there's a whole lot more to what's happening in the courts. And so I think at this moment, if we want to ask, is there an inflection point? Can the agencies just announce new guidelines that look more like the 68 guidelines? I think they're going to face uh, a different kind of challenge in doing that, given that the guidelines' success has gotten them written into law. The second point, and I know this is one of the main goals of, of today's conference, is to talk about rulemaking. Um, and regardless of where you come out on whether the FTC has authority for competition rulemaking, MAGMOS, consumer protection rulemaking, some combination, I think that what we're seeing is kind of hybrid rulemaking using the MAGMOS procedures, but including provisions that are justified on competition grounds. Regardless of where you come out on that, this is a particularly inopportune time, given cases like AMG Capital, given cases like EPA, um, the West Virginia versus EPA, to be pressing for broader administrative authority. And I know this is going to be the discussion most of the rest of the day, and so we wanted to set it up a little bit. Um, but it gets to my point of, are we at an inflection point? 
Um, well, in terms of that, looking at the administrative decisions of the 1970s versus where the court is today, um, I think there's going to be a lot of skepticism, and that's going to be a harder path to go um, uh, given where the courts are. And so you come around to the big question, I think um, Bill Kovacic will be talking about this. What does a program look like today? If you do want to change the law, if you do want to move in a direction, where do you put your resources? Um, uh, what are the most um, uh, you know, receptive pathways to change if you want that? Um, are we going to get legislation? Right now, it's not looking much like legislation. Um, I'd be happy to talk about why I oppose um, uh, so-called ICOA. But the two bills that are getting the most attention are ICOA and the horrible idea that we should let um, save journalism by allowing cartels. Um, <laughs> And I find myself, you know, as I said, I believe that we need more progressive antitrust. It's uncomfortable for me to say that I don't really like either of those bills. I think they're based on bad bipartisanship, if there is such a thing. Um, uh, the, the interests behind those are, are very troubling to me. So with that, I will invite opening up for more questions about our final segment here. Yeah, well, Andy, you, you always disappoint me when you make so much sense. <laughs> But thank you very much. Uh, let me just ask the other panelists uh, to react to what's been said, and maybe if you have your own views on all of this legislation that's uh, running around and whether anything is likely to come of it or anything should come of it. And if, if I could just very briefly inject one other uh, facet of the uh, legislative discussion. you know. The, uh, it seems to me a lot of the, of the heat and motion in the antitrust uh, area is generated by the impact of, of GAFAM. The, the, really, it was Tom's opening theme. And, and uh, so we have this uh, kind of split that's emerged. We have a number of uh, proposed general revisions to the antitrust statutes, uh, all of which strike me as very bad ideas. Uh, but then you have a, a number of other proposals that are essentially narrowly targeted on perhaps the issues associated with the digital platforms and the GAFAMs and, uh, and so forth. And uh, if, you, if uh, Tom or Barry want to react, if you could comment on this whole notion that maybe, maybe what's really going on here is we're about to give rise, uh, give, give birth to a new specialized uh, regulatory approach to some of the problems of the digital platform. So, so let me turn it to one of you. Volunteer I'm, acceptance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on the legislation. It, uh, I, I haven't read it from front to back or, or studied it in detail, but any time uh, legislation that is, is being passed that, that's as significant as that, it, it makes me a little bit nervous, um, anxious, uh, because you know the implications may not be fully understood, and 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 my general sense is that they haven't been fully studied. Um, that's not to say that there isn't room to to make improvements. So if there are concerns about tech companies acquiring nascent competitors, and that that is you know if that's a unique uh, an issue that requires special attention, and 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 you want to make sure that those types of transactions get reviewed by the agencies. You know, maybe take a look at what Germany's done with their lowering the thresholds on tech companies. 
and and you know let's look and see if that's worked over there has that helped or hurt you know and and you know maybe there's room to to make some adjustments to deal with some of the unique circumstances associated with uh, uh, tech acquisitions uh, but you know on balance I, I you know even even if you believe that that there's room for improvement um, you know some of that can come through uh, thoughtful enforcement and maybe doing something like the FTC did with the hospitals back in the 6b study using that more to to, to make sure that 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 the decisions are considered and based on 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 on, on uh, you know data where you can actually see where, what were the price effects in particular circumstances and 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 you know were there deals that went through that should have been you know should have been challenged because um, you know the agencies aren't perfect they're trying to sort of base enforcement that's supposed to be forward looking but always relying on historical information because that's what the courts demand. And, and I don't know how you, you know, it's hard to get around that. We use economists sometimes to do it, but you have the, you know, competing economists and then the judges kind of throw up their hands and, and uh, not sure who's right or who's wrong because it, you know, sometimes is, is over everybody's head. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I, I'm supportive of a more incremental approach to addressing some of the concerns. I'm worried about spillover from passing legislation that seems to be driven by the big tech companies, the GAFAMs, um, that, that, that will necessarily you know, have an impact that's much broader and, and, and could, you know, could be detrimental in some cases. So maybe, 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 it, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but I, I'm not, I haven't seen anything to persuade me that, 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 uh, that it necessarily makes good, make, makes sense for you know, the, the, the entire economy. Tom, just before you uh, I turn the floor over to you, I just wanted to, to, to jump in uh, on one point. Uh, Barry, you, you, made the, uh, you, you made the observation that, that, that this thing, that these legislative proposals has not, have not been especially well vetted. And I think that it, I believe it is still true to say, and if it is, it's certainly something that deserves a lot of emphasis. The, the Sherman Act, the critical provisions of the Sherman Act, the key language of the substantive prohibitions, has basically been untouched since 1890. There have been procedural changes, remedial changes, and of course, you know, the practice and the, the fines and, and class actions, that's all evolved. But the substantive provisions are now exactly as they were in 1890. All of the, I believe it's true to say that, that, that none of the current legislative proposals has been the subject of a legislative hearing. There have been informational hearings where people were brought in to complain about the conduct of this, of this firm or the conduct of that firm. There have been markups, but other than that, there has never been the traditional process of proposing specific legislation, putting it in front of experts and panels uh, subject to questioning. And the idea that you would change such a major basic law that has been viewed as adequate for that length of time, essentially you'd change it in the back room 
uh, just kind of uh, surprises and disappoints me. And uh, it's something that I think an aspect of the legislative process, of this legislative process, that uh, deserves more recognition and attention. So that's my two cents. Tom, take it away. Um, thanks. Yeah, there's, there are a lot of wild swings being taken now, uh, not just on the baseball field. Uh, and, um, you know, you see, uh, you know, stylized facts develop. Uh, for example, uh, uh, the, the argument against Amazon that's uh, driven so much of this thinking uh, that they're uh, self-preferencing and uh, they've, they've created this magnificent uh, retail platform, but now that they're, they're, they're moving out the third-party vendors, uh, you just look at the simple data. Uh, Amazon started in uh, 97, 98 uh, at 100% Amazon product. They weren't a manufacturer, but they contracted and they sold Amazon products. Uh, today, they're, they're about 36% Amazon in terms of uh, the actual uh, retail sales. Uh, they are a third-party platform, and that's how uh, Amazon has uh, reaped enormous profits, uh, that plus uh, integration, obviously, into the cloud. And um, it, it's become a platform for independent competitors to Amazon. That's, that's what the market is telling us. Those third-party vendors go to Amazon. By the way, they could go to eBay, where there is no self-preferencing. And eBay was much larger to start with. Now they're much smaller. <clears throat> they can go to Shopify. <clears throat> by the way, which is a Canadian firm, and it is in the top 30. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, when, when you're Europe and you're behind Canada in the top 30, that's, that's something. Uh, the digital regulator idea, I mean, this comes out of the Stigler Report, the University of Chicago, uh, the idea that there should be a new specific industry oversight. Um, this, this goes right in the face of what, what we've learned about rent-seeking and capture. And I, I do want to mention, um, and, uh, you know, um, Andy, Makes, makes a good point about the, you know, the 1980s weren't obviously a vacuum, and you had, you had a run-up. You had particularly the 1970s. came right before the 80s, uh, if memory serves. <laughs> and um, you had the deregulation wave of the 1970s, and that was, of course, uh, really not a Chicago phenomenon. And in fact, one of the key players, uh, Fred Kahn, uh, born and died a, a very loyal New Deal Democrat, and this was a learning process. Uh, we saw uh, the behavior of the Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, the Civil Aeronautics Board, uh, these, these uh, government uh, cartel enforcement agencies. And uh, we were able to, to understand, uh, after some lag, what the problem was there and how consumer welfare would be served by moving past that, loosening markets, uh, allowing open competition, <clears throat> eventually abolishing both agencies. And the, and the results have been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, in environmental uh, aspects of, of, of those deregulations or agency uh, phase-out, so to speak, were, were very pronounced as well. Anyway, we, we, you know, when you talk about major reforms in antitrust and you have bills, uh, for example, to try to make it harder for platforms to acquire nascent competitors, well, if you actually look at the, the amount of merger activity amongst these uh, GAFM platforms, it's very, very small as a, 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 in comparison to other tech firms or the, uh, the market as a whole, adjusting for size and, and, and life, of the, uh, life of the firms. And the actual examples given as problems uh, we, this is what uh, Crandall and I do in our uh, uh, 2022 paper. Um, and, um, uh, you know, one, one of the standard examples is Android. Google acquires Android in 2005, 
Android is a um, startup, has no actual software platform, has no services and no revenues, had six or seven employees, but uh, Google, thinking ahead about what might happen before the iPhone is released, uh, buys this nub of a competitor. The idea is now, with the legislation you're talking about, driving reform possibly, that this was anti-competitive. That if, you, if Google hadn't gotten in there and bought Android, Android would be a major independent platform, not tied with any other large digital platform. It's entirely fanciful. In fact, Apple comes in in 2007 with its uh, iconic consumer innovation of the iPhone. They introduce the App Store. The following year, they create this great ecosystem. Uh, great's a technical term. And uh, it, 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 it takes the market by storm. In, uh, it, it wipes out the existing uh, competitors in that market, uh, RIM, BlackBerry on the one side, <clears throat> and uh, Nokia, Symbian, with their software, Symbian, uh, Symbian software platform on the other. And um, Apple's off to the races only to see the rise of Android, i.e. Google, come and, and offer a, um, another great competitor in that space. Now, it was clearly pro-competitive to have Google be able to buy this uh, software and develop it and make it what we call Android today, nothing even remotely similar to what it was. And that platform outcompeted, for example, Microsoft. Microsoft made a big run. In fact, in 2005, uh, the big software for mobile phones was Microsoft, mobile Microsoft, my, uh, my, uh, mobile Windows. And uh, uh, Microsoft integrated, they bought uh, Nokia Symbian, which was the leading smartphone platform uh, prior to the iPhone. Microsoft integrates, does what Microsoft does, tries to make it its own platform. Within a couple of years, they're writing off about uh, $8 billion in losses because they couldn't compete with Apple or Google. Okay, so the idea that there was a simple pathway that we can look back and see for this startup Android to be its own independent platform is entirely uncompelling. It was very pro-competitive to allow that sale, that transaction in hindsight. And this is an example. These are the cherry-picked examples. If you go through the whole list, you'll find that there isn't a lot that's more compelling. In fact, in the Android uh, thing, uh, the Android-Google uh, uh, merger. Uh, so we have to be very careful about these wild swings. Uh, and uh, if you simply examine some of the assertions made in support of the new measures, you'll be, uh, I believe, underwhelmed. Reaction, Andy, or? <laughs> Questions? Um, is that your phone buzzing? No, it's my phone. I'm getting a call now. Um, let, let's just take S2992 and you know talk about, I want to pick up on some of the um, important things, many important things Tom said. First of all, the bill is kind of an admixture of law enforcement and regulation. So it's, it's a little different in that sense. The provisions look very regulatory, but both agencies and all of the state attorneys general would be authorized to enforce it. Um, that should give us pause um, as to what it might actually produce, because it won't produce uh, a, a coherent 
um, uh, regulatory scheme. Um, maybe that helps to break down the danger of capture, but in kind of a weird way, given the likelihood that you're going to have very, very different priorities in that group of enforcers as to why to bring a case and what is self-preferencing and, uh, and so forth. Second is, uh, unlike any antitrust bill that I know of um, uh, previously, it is targeted by design at a small group of firms. Um, I don't like that. I think that it would be a mistake to have a bill that's based on market capitalization when everybody knows it's going to be limited to a small group of firms. And that's why it's bipartisan. Well, duh, we should all have some cause for concern when there's agreement about let's get these guys because the reasons for getting those guys are different across the aisle. Um, and put that together with the um, penalties, which are based on the entire size of the enterprise, not anything calibrated to any actual violation. Put it in the hands of a lot of different people, um, and I think you have a really bad precedent brewing for how we should be doing competition policy. Um, final point I would make about that bill is there's absolutely no concession. This goes, I, I forget who said it, but about the original House report that sort of became the basis for the bill. Um, there's no concession to any consumer value that these companies have delivered. There's no concession to their growth as a result of success and consumer value that they've delivered. There's, there's no concession to the possibility that the, what's being described as discriminatory or self-preferencing was the function of a, a very long-term uh, trail of consumer choices um, uh, for particular kinds of products. Put that all together, and I think it's just a, a bad precedent. And going forward, I would hope there would be some humility on the part of um, some of the folks uh, supporting it about the precedent it sets for future bills targeted at specific companies that are being disfavored by various groups of, of for basically political reasons. Um, so I don't think we need to get beyond that um, uh, to really be concerned about the intended for some and unintended consequences of, of that particular bill. Um, it is not a good idea for antitrust. Does that mean that there's no need for reform? No. Um, I think there were other bills that were, um, uh, were more open to the general applicable approach of the Sherman and Clayton Act to let's change standards applicable to all firms. And the last thing I would say about that is um, I don't think when you get to the conceptual level, I don't think you can protect all of the rest of the economy from the conceptual um, viewpoint in that bill. Um, uh, what will self-preferencing mean and what will the private bar do with it for other firms? And surely there are firms of smaller overall capital size that actually are larger in particular markets that would fall outside that bill. Um, uh, but the the thought process for the offenses, the way they're defined, um, will appear, and merger guidelines are not going to be just for the tech firms. Concepts of nation competition, concepts of uh, efficiency for better or worse, 
if these things change, they will change for everyone. They will change for um, all firms. And so um, I think it's also a mistake to sort of dismiss this, um, uh, this bill as just, a, you know, it's not our problem. It's just about big tech, and they should worry about it. But it's not going to affect us. Um, as a precedent and in terms of its content and theories, it will affect um, many different things, as will new merger guidelines. I, look, I'm worried about getting rid of self-preferencing because... Every time I go to the grocery store, I buy the generic brand, and my wife hates it. And, but, but that's what I like to buy. So if, 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 if it's going to go away, it's going to go away. I mean, we've had self-preferencing for decades in grocery stores. What's, I, I don't understand. It's, I, I kind of like it. No, the bill's going to apply to you, Barry. You've been expressing <laughs> your self-preference. We have just a very short period of time before... Did you have a question? Or? I have a question. I, moderator's privilege. I get one. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I think, direct it at Andy. I think I'm going to direct it at, at Andy and, and Barry, but I, I know from experience I will not be able to stop Tom from answering. Um, we'll let you go the, first. The, <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> so um, to run a revolution, you got to win some cases. Right? You've got you to put some points on the board if you're going to have a revolution or even an inflection point. They're, they're, not, they're not doing that. They're o they're for a lot uh, on the merger front in, in particular. And I think um, it's pretty interesting because the win rate for the agencies sort of historically, last administration, the administration before that, the administration before that, um, 85 plus at the FTC, upwards of 90 at, at, at points, uh, and and Ofer doesn't doesn't get you there, or, or or sort of even even close. I think both uh, Andy and Barry sort of tucked in maybe some hypotheses about what is going on, and, and correct me if I if I if I'm wrong, but you can think about a bunch of reasons why they're now O4 a, a lot. Um, Barry suggested maybe at the DOJ that will turn around, and they've got they've got sort of good good personnel. But you can imagine changes in personnel. Maybe it's just random, and the the win rate will sort of jump back up to, to ninety. Though I'm a, I'm a skeptic. Um, but you know, personnel changes, um, changes in the in the law. I think I heard you suggest any, but I don't know of one on the Section Seven standard that would explain the change between last administration. I mean, it's a dramatic change. And maybe maybe there's something you've got in mind, or there's, there's sort of some other things uh, going on. Could be wild theories. You read the complaints; the theories don't look wild. Could be the gap between the evidence mustered uh, uh, that you can put in front of the court and what's in in the complaint. But if you just look at the win rates compared to history, um, I, I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, you've got this ambitious agenda, which you guys have sort of. Uh, done the, the the work of discussing sort of all, all corners of it. Why are they losing all their cases? Um, so I think I, I'd start with what I think they would say about that historic win rate, which is that it shows how timid the agencies have been. Um, if you're winning at this high, high rate, it means you're not really trying to push the envelope. You're, you're bringing safe cases. I and mean, we know that they, they've said that. So that's their view. We could debate whether that's a valid view, an invalid view. But certainly, if you're losing everything, you go to the other extreme, there, there are some bad signs there. 
So I think one important question is what, what characteristics do these cases that both agencies have lost, what characteristics do they have in common? Uh, is it really a pushing the envelope? As I said earlier, I'm not so sure that it's really pushing the envelope. So what is it? Is it bad preparation? Is it you know weak evidence? Is it bad case selection? Um, what is that? It is still early. Um, uh, you know, if their thinking is, ah, we're, sh- we're showing Congress we need legislative change, um, that's a hell of a way to run into a, a wall. Um, uh, Solzhenitsyn once wrote a book called The Ram That Butted the Oak. Um, I don't think it's a good model for antitrust <laughs> agencies in the U.S. Um, good for a dissident, not for... Um, so um, I, I, I share your concern. I want to know, like, what do those cases... Can we as, as you know, practitioners, academics, look at those cases and determine, are there common features that explain and answer your question? Why are they losing? That's a really important question. Um, and, and will it continue? I, so, so I don't think it's just about winning cases. I think if that were the goal, it'd be really easy to win them all. Um, there's more to it. Uh, and and you know, depending on the, the policy goals of, of the administration, um, some cases may be brought in order to push the law, as, as Andy said, and, and that's an incremental process. If you try to take too big a step, it makes it much more challenging. Um, other cases may be brought because there hasn't been any law. There's like regulation by consent decree, and the courts really haven't had a chance to opine on it. So you say, Let, let's bring a case and let the courts express a view, and let's see where they think the law is. Um, you know, you said that Sherman Act hasn't changed since 1890, but how it's been interpreted and applied has. It's evolved. Um, so, so there's more to it than just bringing cases to win. Um, sometimes cases are brought knowing that, 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 that they're 50-50 at best, and, but they're important policy objectives that, that the agencies are trying to achieve. Um, and, and, and it's not just moving the law, but also, you know, trying to be firm on how they're going to enforce the law. And, and, you know, it does help to win the case. It's obviously a lot better to win the case. But, but uh, I think Jonathan, uh, if you ask Jonathan Cantor, you know, he'll tell you that, you know, even on some of the no-poach cases where they lost the actual trial, they will say it was a win because the courts recognize that, that no poach is a per se offense that can be prosecuted criminally, but they lost the trial. So the, you know, the changes are incremental, and, and, and not all cases are brought for the sole purpose of, of, of winning. But, but when you lose a lot, it, it, does, you know, it should be examined, and that's what the FTC did back with hospital cases, and they, they learned from it and, 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 and changed how they approached them and, and, and turned the record around. We're a little over time, but okay. did you have a reaction, Tom? Well, I'd, I'd like to ask the, the experts here if I have time to ask a quick question. I mean, as an economist, I've read the uh, Federal Trade Commission complaint against Facebook. That's going to go to trial, I guess, next year. Um, it seems like there's going to be a lot of laughter uh, from the bench when, that, when, when those arguments are made. It, it just doesn't seem like a serious case. And uh, I, I think, well, if you're the federal, and I understand what's brought to, before the current administration came in, but why would, why would you continue that? Well, you might well continue it. I mean, certainly it's a popular target. Um, and 
you, you want to lose that case to tell Congress we need new laws. I mean, we took we took a shot at your favorite, one of your favorite uh, defendants. Uh, got nowhere. We're going to need legislation. Is that a is is you know that I'm I'm now I'm swinging wildly. You know how how close does that get? I'm I'm asking the experts. But not not very close if the administration um, uh, if, if Congress shifts um, after the election. Um, so if you're counting on losing in order to you know, incentivize Congress to give you more authority at a time when Congress is doubtful of how you would use that authority, at least some are, um, that, that's not a very good strategy. Well, so you think the Republicans are more pro-Facebook? No, I mean, that particular case, remember, it was actually a split vote, even though it was the, the prior. Um, uh, right. So I don't want to comment on the, yeah. about the yeah. particulars okay. of, the, of the case, but... I think you're right. They're going to face a lot of resistance to challenging mergers from that far ago, uh, that far in the past, and say, we should have somehow been able to evaluate today. I mean, they're not arguing, really, that the FTC is trying to avoid arguing that, oh, we should have opposed it back then. That's not a good argument for the FTC. The question is, now that we've seen the results, um, uh, should we assess the results? And the implications of that case going forward are enormous for revisiting long since settled um, mergers. Um, so I do think that the, you're right, there's going to be resistance. If they win, then the next one's Google Android. <laughs> the, the last thing I'd say about Josh's question is, worse than losing cases is making even worse precedent for yourself to have to live with. Hmm. And that's a consequence of you know, not even pushing the envelope, but losing cases that maybe were close or winnable, and you actually start building case law against yourself. That worries me. I think we're at the end of our time. Uh, I want to uh, thank the panel. Spectacular expertise, wisdom, and humor. So... <laughs> This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.